0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40 and continuing to verse 47. This is God's Word. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen, you may be seated. Father in heaven, as we come now before your word for a few minutes, we would ask now that you would open up our hearts to you, you would move in our midst, that you would challenge us from your word, that you would mend us and build us up, that you would glorify yourself, and that we as your people would testify at the end of our time that we have seen Christ. And we are forevermore changed. Come and meet with us. Come and make us who it is that you want us to be. We know that we need you. And who it is that we're called to be, we cannot be apart from your movement among us today by the power of your Spirit. We feel that dependence and we would ask that you would be mindful that we can do nothing about our condition unless you help us. And so please... Please meet us now and know us that we might know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As some of you know that we have a handful of our members on a trip right now, a mission trip to Greece. They are serving a variety of refugees coming from. Assyria and, and Iran and many other places across the Middle East, crossing the Mediterranean down to Greece, many of them not making it, families being split up from each other. It's a tragic situation. If you've been watching the news, you know it's one of the largest potentially refugee crises that the world has known. It's, it's a very, very significant need. Received a text from one of our members this week, just deeply touched by what it is that was shared. This is what he said. He said, this trip has been a real challenge. It's also been a real blessing. I've never had a chance to help so many people get warm and get dry, nor have I had the responsibility to tell twice as many that we have nothing left to help them with. I spent tonight walking through a crowd of over 500 cold and wet people along the shoreline to find that one kid who seemed to be shaking the most so that I could sneak him back through the gate to get the last pieces of dry clothes that we had. I've been blessed to be here. Thank you for all the prayers and the support. I learned that that same person, just a a little while after this text was sent, wind up giving his own socks away. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I have a drawer full of socks. I have a drawer full of socks. You know, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we read this this word. It says, do good to all, and especially to the household of faith. It's a great word from the Apostle Paul. Do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. There's something something special when the Lord begins to move in the hearts of his people to care for the needs of others. There's something just really special about that. There's something really close to the Lord's heart that is happening in the moment where someone is giving their own socks away to another person in need. There's something really special happening there. And, and the thing that's really special that's happening there is that Christ is showing up. The power of the gospel is showing up. And the people who have the things that other people need can no longer hold on to them. And they gladly and they freely release them to be used in the name of Christ for the ministry and service to others, and for the glory of his name. It's a remarkable thing. It's an amazing thing when that happens. Real Christian belief in the gospel drives real Christian charity in service to others. Those two are not at odds with each other. Throughout the 20th century, those two things have often been pitted against one another. Are we called more to do the work of Christ or to proclaim the message of Christ? Which one is more important? Well, that's a foolish question. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. We proclaim the message of Christ and we live out the message of Christ simultaneously in word and in deed. Each confirming and penetrating the other. And each authenticating and validating the reality of the other. Seeing the love of Christ expressed in deeds and then showing through the message of Christ that those deeds are there because of what Christ has already accomplished on the cross for all those who trust in him. That's what's happening in this church here in Acts chapter 2. Is the word and the deeds are coming right beside each other and they are filling out and changing a community as both the love of Christ is shared with lip and the love of Christ is expressed with the entirety of our lives. That becomes attractional to those who are looking for real truth, real love, and real grace and that's what the gospel offers is a kind of community that's so based and rooted in this kind of deep truth that it changes the lives of its people so much so that they gladly give themselves away in ministry to others last Sunday we spoke really about this first aspect of Acts 2 44 to 45 where True Christian belief produces a true and unique and deep Christian fellowship. All who believed and they were together. Today we want to look at the last part of that verse in Acts 44, stemming into verse 45, where we find out that true Christian fellowship drives this true Christian charity. What we find is that Christian charity then strengthens that fellowship and it begins to spread the glorious gospel of Christ. As you see day by day in this passage, there are those who are added to the number, of those who are being saved. There was something really powerful about the combination of the word of the gospel and the deed being expressed through that powerful word of the gospel coming side by side into the life of that community. And I want to just summarize what I believe that we're seeing in verses 44 and 45 because I think that there are all kinds of defense mechanisms that we have because we are people with a lot of stuff when we come to passages like this. I mean, some of you are really interested in whether the Bible is advancing some sort of proto-communism. It's not. This has nothing to do with politics or socioeconomic systems. This has to do with people's hearts open up to one another in the gospel. And some of us are wondering, well, do we have to do this? Well, yeah. You do? To more or less degree, in some way, shape, or form. Now, to what degree, shape, or form that needs to take for you? You won't see me tell you that. Don't get too nervous. I'm going to let Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell you that. I think that's what he's telling us, is that this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what gospel community and mission look like when the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst. And so we want to see that the reality of Christ being common in a community leads to the reality that we share our stuff in common with one another. That there's necessarily connect. And they are, they're inextricable from one another. Despite our best attempts at separating them, okay? And I would like to put it this way. The tighter your grip is on Christ and the commonness that we share together in Christ, the looser your grip will be on your stuff. And the weaker Your grip is on Christ and upon those within your community, the stronger your grip will be on your stuff. That's the way it works. It's it's really that simple. Acts 2.45 is trying to press that reality into our lives. It's trying to say, this is how the gospel works. This is how it manifests itself. If you hold him in common, you're going to learn to hold your stuff in common too with each other you're going to do it gladly freely not under some forced socioeconomic system you're going to do it because it's going to be the movement of the spirit and you're going to in the moment that you do it you're going to think how could i do anything less than give my socks away to the one that needs those socks So I want to just note these things for you. We don't have enough time to get into them all, so I'm just going to note them. Maybe we'll come back to them next week. I want you to see that the gospel, first of all, releases us from our idolatry to our things. Okay, It just releases us from it. And then the gospel transforms our things into a ministry to others. And then finally, the gospel redeems that ministry to others as a witness for Christ to the world. That's what it does. That's what we're actually seeing in this passage is that the gospel releases us from our idolatry of our stuff. And now this should kind of make sense when you begin to look at how the gospel um, works. We tend to view ourselves as owners who've earned everything that we possess. That's so how we tend to view our, ourselves. We bought a house, it's ours. We bought a car, it's ours. But if you look at the biblical text, we see a very different line of thought. I could use a dozen scriptures here. Let me just point you to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 begins this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I love how the psalmist repeats himself just to make sure it's clear. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you go, I wonder if he means the world is God's (laughs) and all that is in it. I mean, there's no question. He repeats it. It's called a synonymous parallelism in the Psalms. It means I'm telling you this twice so that you'll get it. It'll stick with you. He says, this is how the world's really organized. God alone is the owner of all things. Now, interestingly, if you follow the storyline of the Bible, what you see is that rebellion happens when we try to be owners. That's what rebellion really is. Think of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, despite the fact that God commanded them to do otherwise, they were in essence rejecting God's ownership over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were rejecting his authority for the tree that he made, that he owned, and defined the reality around. Instead, they were saying, you know what? I'll define the reality of this tree. I'll use it how I see fit. I don't have to obey the commands of God or accept his desires and his wishes. I will be the one who defines this tree and how it will be used. It's an ownership mentality. It's mine, and I'll figure it out. I'll determine how it is that it ought to be used. Martin Luther argued on many occasions that sin, all sin, can be, back, can be traced to the root of idolatry. And idolatry is essentially this. Whenever a creature decides to serve and worship the creation rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's whenever a creature, you and me, decide to serve or worship the creation rather than the creator. Now that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3. For after Eve told the serpent that God said she would die if she ate of the tree. Do you remember what the serpent said? He gave her a rejoinder. He says, you're not going to die. But instead God knows that if you eat of it you will be like him knowing good and evil. Now do you see what he's saying? The serpent is saying, look that created thing if you take and eat of it will make you more than you currently are it'll make you more than you currently are if not if you decide not to serve god and decide instead to serve the creation this tree of the knowledge of good and evil this fruit if you serve and. Worship it and go against what it is that God's created, and you decide to define your reality around it, and you take and eat it. Guess what? It's gonna make you more than you are. You're actually gonna be like, like God. Now let's think about how silly this is. If we just pull back from Genesis chapter 3, let me just put the temptation in in kind of context for you. The serpent is saying, eat fruit, and it will make you like God does strike anybody as odd like is probably not plausible you know like fruit making you God just it's just the line of thought that goes along with that just it's, it's hard it's not doesn't feel very convincing But it's actually no different than anything that we do when we begin to center our affections around the things of the world and we believe that they're going to give us stuff or make us better or give us positions that we think are over and against the position that God gives us. For instance, I'm going to buy this new car and it's going to make me happy. It's going to make me happy. Some of us have tried this. We buy the new car and we're so happy. It's got that new car smell. I mean, it's amazing. And you know that new car that you bought that now is that old car that no longer makes you happy because the payment started coming in and the kids spilled orange juice on the back seat of it and it doesn't merely give you the kind of happiness you thought it was going to give you and you... And instead of drawing the conclusion, cars don't give us happiness, you think, I just got the wrong car. I need to go get another car. Right? That's going to that's gonna give me happiness. You know, I'm feeling down. I'm going to go to the mall and give me some new clothes. Right? You know, some of us, some of us shop for, for a high to feel better. Now, you know, you get new clothes, it doesn't make you feel better. Let's be honest. Who doesn't like putting on a new sweater, right? Especially in a cool morning. It's great. This morning, I pulled out a sweater that had holes in it. I guess some moth got in there or something and ate it or whatever. I used to love that sweater. I can't even wear it anymore. I don't feel good about myself, and I look at that sweater In the way that I used to, in other words, that thing, that created thing is not actually able to sustain the promises and the feelings and the things that we think we're going to gain from it. It actually will fall short. It caves in. It's not able to achieve it. And in Eve's case, she's looking to a created thing to make her like God. And in our case, we're looking to a created thing that can't give us what only God can give us. Only he can give us the things that our heart really desires. And essentially, that's how idolatry works. And when it works, it just starts the cycle right back over. And so the problem is we wind up turning our attention to created things when only the creator is the one who can give us the things that we're looking for in those things. It's those desires underneath the desires. Oh, I need a new shirt. No, I really want to feel like I'm awesome. I, I need this. And what I really want is what I'm really after is the feeling, that sense underneath. I want that new, new job because if I get that new job, I'll get the respect that I've always been known, that I've des- deserved, and then you get the new job and what? Nobody respects you like you thought that they would. And so God in his graciousness what he does is instead of saying, "Hey, you're just you don't you're not getting it together here. I'm going to whip you into shape. I'm going to push you into the position that you're in a creature." Instead, he does something much more gracious. He decides to be made a creature like us. Yet without sin. It's, it's quite remarkable. I want you to think of it this way. We, the creature, turned creation into what the creator should have gotten from us. We turned to creation to replace our creator. But here's what God did. God, our creator, became a creature to redeem us from the idolatry of creation. It's remarkable. He became like us. Now, I find that very re- fascinating because... In that word redeem, it's actually an economic term. The word redeem is an economic term. Redemption is about exchange. When you go to that department store to buy those new clothes and you give them a $50 bill, that frees the clothes from the rack and you get to take them home. They're held captive at the store until you drop that $50 bill. Don't try to take them home without that $50 bill. You're going to get in some trouble. But that $50 bill frees, as it were, those clothes to be able to come home and they become yours by virtue of purchase. The very same thing is happening when the Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross. He is paying the price tag, the penalty, for our sins, which is death. And in paying the penalty for our sins, we are freed from our bondage to sin and to death, and we are made his prized possession, what he calls his treasured possession, his trophy of grace. And we are at that point, then begin to find once again, as Adam and Eve had originally been designed to to find, we begin to find all our identity, all of our meaning, all of our significance, all of our happiness in him, in him alone. Because that is where it is ultimately all located. Now to the degree that that truth really transforms us, we will begin to experience the freedom to be released from the things of this world. To the degree that we've really embraced that our ultimate needs, our ultimate significance, our ultimate meaning, and our ultimate happiness is found in him, to that degree will we experience the freedom to be released from the things of the world. At that point, our stuff can just be our stuff. It It can just be our things. It doesn't have to be our ticket to respect, our means of acceptability, our way to garner significance, or to feel good about ourselves. At that point, it just becomes stuff. It becomes gifts, the things of the Lord. And so the first thing that the gospel actually does is it loosens our grip on our stuff and it provides for us a means by which we can then begin to release that stuff into ministry. We begin to release that stuff into ministry. I'm gonna look at this briefly with you in in the second place, how the gospel turns our stuff into a ministry to others. Listen, just because we are freed from idolatry and the stuff of idolatry doesn't mean we're not going to wrestle with it. We continue to wrestle with it, don't we? We continue to deal with the fact that, that we will return over and over and over to stuff to give us cheap thrills in life and then we have to come back again to Christ and repent and walk through that process is what we're seeking to do today to renew our minds in that truth. But I don't want you to draw the conclusion that stuff is bad. Stuff is not bad. And that's why it can be redeemed and turned into a ministry. It's really important to see this. The Bible, nowhere will you hear it say material or things are bad. That's called Gnosticism. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, God created stuff. Like all of it. He's for it. He's for your home. He's not against your home. He's for your, your car. He's for your clothes. In fact, we know he's for clothes. He was the first designer of clothes. Saw that in Genesis 3. He he trim-setted clothes in Genesis 3. He looked at the fashion statement of Adam and Eve, and he was like, that's not the direction you want to go. Fig leaves is not the direction you want to go. Animal skins, mink coats, that's how we're going. Okay? He was the first one. He's not opposed to stuff. So the gospel restores our stuff to a proper place in our lives. And what begins to happen is that in Acts 2.45, uh, is we begin to see our stuff as now the gifts of God that we are called to steward, rather than the things that we've earned which we own. You see, when, when we've been bought with a price... And we can say, like the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What we're saying is everything that we are and all that we aspire to be is for Christ. That's what we're saying when we say that. So what that means is my stuff now has to do with the fact that it's his stuff. It's his stuff, and he's given it to me as a gift. And now I treasure it not in the way that it can be used to selfishly glut my own interests, but now I begin to look at it as the means by which he uses to meet my needs and the means by which I can use it to minister to others and so what happens when you have a community of people who are holding Christ in this gospel in common with one another is they begin to see that real Christian love and charity flowing from the gospel allows us to see our stuff not as a stumbling block to community, but as a means of forging community and ministry to each other. Let me show you how this happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. The Apostle Paul here is writing, and this is really from kind of stealing a section here from Jonathan Edwards in a lecture he gave on Christian charity, tremendous lecture where he focuses this section in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9, which is the section where Paul says we're to be cheerful givers, right? And he writes to the church at Corinth, and you know, he's asking them to give to the needs of the poor in Jerusalem, and he's making an appeal. And you know what he does as he makes this appeal for the poor in Jerusalem among the church at Corinth. He says this in verse 8... He says, I say this to you. In other words, I'm appealing to you to give to the poor who are in Jerusalem. I say this to you not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Paul is saying, I don't want to command you to give money to those who are in need in Jerusalem. What I want to do is appeal to your love and your earnestness. And in so doing, I want you to freely give to the need that's in Jerusalem so he says how does he do this well notice how he does it in verse 9 verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8 he says this for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so you know it I don't have to guilt you or manipulate you or try to twist your arm you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ well what's the grace of Christ let's well, how he describes it that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, what did, what did Paul do? Well, Paul just preached the gospel to him. He just preached the gospel to him. He didn't, he didn't say, now, you know you ought to do this. He said, I want to renew your mind to such a degree that you are so clearly aware of what it is that Christ has done for you and that your every need is met in him and that right now he is giving his hard-earned effort and strength towards creating a new heavens and a new earth for you and of which he will provide for you for all eternity that you will never be without everything that you possibly need now knowing that Christ did all of that. What do you think he ought to do for the people in Jerusalem who have a few needs? You decide. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You decide. Let the love of Christ and the model of Christ and the power of that gospel motivate you to release your goods in ministry to one another. It's the exact thing that's happening here in Acts 2, 45. And it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, here's what's really remarkable about this text if you can kind of look at it with me. This word, verse, this word of selling in verse 45 of the text is actually the word dispossessed the so word dispossessed, it means that people were not, as Tony's already alluded to in our confession of sin today, it doesn't mean that people were skimming across the extra resources that they had waiting in the wings in case a need arose. It's not what we're talking about. This is not an emergency fund that's kept over here that we tap into if we need it. What, we're, what he's actually saying here is that people who possess things dispossess themselves of things in order to meet the needs of others. Now you see how that's clearly a model of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this gospel had gotten in so deep because they realized that that's exactly what Jesus did. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ emptied himself of all of the privileges, all of the blessings, of what it means to be the owner of all things. And he made himself nothing. And became as a servant in order that you who have nothing might have all that is his in his finished work on the cross. That's the picture of the cross. That's the picture of the gospel. And so we have this this picture of being dispossessed for the purposes of why. Meaning all needs for any that would arise in the midst. Now here's what's also quite remarkable about the way that this is designed in verses 44 and 45. The end of verse 44, we noted this last week, it says they had all things in common. And that word common is the Greek word koinea. It's the, it's the word that we typically use for fellowship. So we could read it this way and all things who believed, all who believed were together, had all things in fellowship with one another. Now here's what's really interesting. It seems to me that Luke is indicating that fellowship is really built on meeting the needs of one another. On meeting the needs of one another, he says the commonness really began to be forged in the moments that you're really meeting the needs of one another. And I want to just simply appeal to your experience to make that confirmation to be true. You you know what it is like to be in need. Right? And someone in your moment of need comes and meets that need for you. What happens in that moment is an incredible sense of love that this person would go to those lengths to sacrifice for me that I would have the things that I needed. And you knew that they went out of their way and sacrificed for the purposes of being sure that your needs were met. And in the moment that that happens, your hearts match. Fellowship is forced. It's in that moment where the the, the ties that bind us are strengthened all of the more. And let me tell you this, this binding in community really cannot happen to the degree that it must happen in the gospel unless we are loving each other this way. Because when we're loving each other this way, It means that we are saying I prize the call of the Lord Jesus Christ and I prize the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so much more than my things that I desire with the entirety of my life and in all of my possessions to lay them at his feet to be used for his bidding because he's the steward of the vineyard And he has called me into a ministry that resembles and looks like that of his beloved son. And that call is not something I take up begrudgingly, but my heart is so deeply in love with the Lord Jesus Christ that I can't imagine living another way than that. Because that's so beautiful to me. It is so beautiful to me as to what Christ has done for me. How could it not then, in that beautiful love, me also, in a faint way express that kind of love towards someone else who's also in need that's the spirit now when you begin to experience that kind of binding together in community here's what also begins to happen the community begins to grow the community begins to go we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come so we'll return to it verses 46 and 47 but what you begin to see is that the community grows Because they begin to see a love that they can't make sense of. A grace that is so magnanimous, is so extravagant, is so glorious, that the people within that community are willing to sell their homes, their houses, their lands, their cars, give away their things in order to meet the needs of the community. I want to be a part of a community like that. And what we begin to see is we're hearing day by day the number was added to those who were being saved. Now let me tell you, some of us are going, well, that must have been a mighty preaching of the word of God that was happening. Well, that played a role, significant role. It didn't happen without it. But I guarantee you, an external world looking at a community that's selling its goods to meet the needs of one another would be a really hard thing to turn down. Because when they begin to see that kind of love within a people, they realize those, those folks have a love that's deeper than anything I've ever known. And this becomes a living apologetic, a living defense, a persuasive argument for the reality of the gospel itself. John writes, as we said last week in John 13, speaking Jesus' very words, that we will be known by our love. And so I rejoice in the fact that I see many of these things happening. I know so many stories within this body where hundreds and even thousands of dollars in cars and homes have been released within this body towards others within this body and towards the community to know that Christ is really alive within our midst. But what would it be like if every single one of us gave ourselves to this? What would happen? What would God be pleased to do if every single one of us decided this week we're going to identify something in our life that's valuable we love, and we're gonna pray over it. We're gonna say, Lord, show me a need within our body. Now I wanna give and sell this thing, meet this need till the needs of this body are none for the testimony of the name of Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be unbelievable. If that began to be the heartbeat at the very center of how it is that we operated as a community. You know what also would begin to happen? We would begin to hear of needs that are actually sitting in these pews that right now we don't know about. Because then we would be a community that says this is a safe enough place to share how low we are, how difficult it is, how we are concerned about where it is that we, we stand. Now we know needs. Now we can meet needs. And we've got a community that's saying, hey, this is how we want to live together. And so I want to challenge you Would you be interested, willing with me to explore that reality this week together and say, Lord, I want you to put something on my heart that you've given to me? I want to think, Lord, how might I sell it or give it for the purposes of an act of devotion to you? Not because some preacher on Sunday morning told me to do it. Don't do it if you do it for that reason. Don't do it. God wants a cheerful giver. That's what he wants. He wants this from you. So, so pray until you're there. And ask the Lord and say, Lord, release my things. They're your things. And there are needs around me. Lord, what is my role? What is my responsibility? What are we as a community supposed to say to the calling that the Lord has placed upon our life as we go into thanksgiving and into Christmas, what's God calling us to? To be in this place. The Lord, the Lord knows in your heart right now what you need to hear. I would just ask you to pay attention how it is that He's moving you and act on it. Don't let time get by. Act on it because the Lord wants to do great things in and through you as people. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we would ask you now to not make this a mere to-do, but to make this something as an expression of your love. So, Lord, we would now pray that you would awaken the needs of this body that maybe even are in this room right now, maybe financial needs, maybe other needs, relational needs, emotional needs, other spiritual needs that are here. Lord, whatever they would be, I pray that we would... Be a people who want to move towards it. And as we hear that need, we're asking ourselves, Lord, how am I a part of your answer to it? Lord, I pray that you would stir that within us. And Lord, as we consider this message and this truth, we pray that you would embed it deep in our lives. Not for any vain glory, but for your name that you might grow in fame over all of the earth. Lord, please do that. Glorify yourself in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.